This is the London Live Podcast. Listen live weekdays from 1 to 3 on 980 CFPL. Last night was a pretty big night at City Hall because a story that we've been following for years now, River Road Golf Course, reached a conclusion. And joining us now to talk about what went on at City Council is Ward 11 Councillor Stephen Turner. Councillor Turner, thanks for making some time for us. Thanks for having me on, Mike. Let's look at River Road. This goes back a number of councils, and there has been a lot of discussion. What do you think brought this council, your council, to a resolution this time? Well, I think uh, this this has been, as you mentioned, a long time in the making. Uh, back about two terms ago, there was uh, the proposition that the River Road be divested uh, just because it uh, had been losing money and it was a challenging course to maintain. Uh, at the time, uh, golfers uh, said, hey, give us some time. We'll show you we can use it. We can, uh, we'll show you that it's worthwhile. And so that time was given. Uh, it's been now about uh, almost six, seven years, I guess. Uh, and well, I think probably close to eight now uh, to take a look at that. And uh, the forecast didn't really improve much. Uh, in fact, it's actually uh, uh, gotten a little more bleak. And so uh, a consultant's report was commissioned uh, to take a look at golf operations in the city and provide some recommendations. Uh, it came before this council, and I, I think given all the discussion and debate and time that, uh, that's been taken to evaluate this, uh, the decision seemed rather clear to most of my colleagues. When we look, there has certainly been reaction from the golfing community. How much of that was taken into account and how much was simply following what the report said? Well, I think there's a few things to look at. The question is, um, what uh, what principle do we need to follow? There's a, a philosophy of golf needs to pay for golf. It's um, not necessarily uh, adopted by all my colleagues, but uh, but it was an important philosophy that Parks and Rec has maintained through this time. Um, the fact that this course has been uh, either uh, rather keeping even or losing money in each year, about on average about $79,000 a year, uh, was required to, to subsidize that course from the operations of the other courses. Uh, the uh, the fact that uh, we're, we're looking at some sustainability challenges uh, over the next few years as well, uh, we um, we have about a $6 million infrastructure deficit on the courses over the next 10 years. And so we need to be able to see those courses as profitable uh, to be able to put money back into those reserves so we can keep them in good operating um, condition. Uh, but if you, if you take a look at, uh, at London, um, we are well serviced by golf courses, and I, I think the uh, um, the, the public uh, input from uh, the golfers has been quite clear that uh, that they love their golf courses, and I think this is important. Uh, but on a, um, a whole per capita, like if we look at the number of golf holes in public courses uh, per hundred thousand residents. London uh, is the highest. Uh, we've got 21 holes per per, uh, per hundred thousand people versus uh, Hamilton uh, and Kitchener is probably the next closest at 15. Windsor at 12. Hamilton at 10. Uh, Toronto has three. Um, so this uh, London is well well serviced. In fact, uh, we've of uh, the comparator groups, so we have the most total holes uh, of golf uh, next to Toronto. Uh, we have 81 holes, and uh, Toronto has 90. 
So uh, the removal of um, River Road from London's inventory still maintains London as a very strong golf provider. Uh, lots of uh, um, uh, good opportunities for golfing within the city with, uh, with both Thames Valley and uh, Fanshawe Park, or Fanshawe uh, Golf Courses. Ward 11 Councillor Stephen Turner joining us as we talk about the end of the story, at least in terms of a golf course for River Road. So does that now bring us down to 21 holes per golfer, or is that what we were with the three municipal courses? That's what we were with the three. And so um, from the 81 holes, uh, I believe um, we, we would reduce by 18 here. So we still are very high in terms of service offerings for the city. When hey. we look at a standalone, the idea that, that the golf courses seem to be standalone in terms of profit, that's come up a lot. Did that come up in discussion as to whether they had to be standalone, profitable? Uh, yeah, very much. That uh, was part of our, a large part of our debate was, uh, does the golf pay for golf or that standalone principle need to apply? Or is this something that uh, the city of London subsidizes uh, through taxes? And uh, that, that's an important question. Uh, for me, it's a question of equity and access. Uh, so the debate from some of the golfers was, well, why don't we apply that to aquatics or to hockey or to to tennis? Um, and the difference is, for me, uh, in terms of access, uh, difference between $35 of green fees or uh, $2.50 to, to have access to a pool program. Uh, that's that's a big difference. And uh, uh, and so the, the access, uh, the universal access of golf is not quite there in the same way that these other programs are. And, uh, and that's where, where the difference is for me in terms of whether this needs to be something that's municipally subsidized. I do think it's important that the city uh, maintains a presence in golf and provides that as an offering. We are able to provide it at a lower cost than uh, the competitors in the private sector, and, and that's because we're a municipal service provider. and we're, we're not looking to make a profit, but we're looking to make sure that the, the operation is sustainable. Ward 11 Councillor Stephen Turner joining us. So, Councillor Turner, what happens now in terms of trying to sell or selling River Road's land? Yeah, at, at this point, um, uh, Realty Services will take a look and try to offer it on the market for uh, the best and highest use, and uh, and that'll be determined through uh, through the, the normal um, divestment uh, procedures that the city has. Uh, has has pretty clear guidelines on how it sells municipal assets and uh, and what those priorities are. So that will be the next. But uh, the decision last night uh, ratified that we would cease operations immediately at the River Road Golf Course. And, and now it's, uh, it's up to Realty to figure out uh, uh, where it goes from here. One other thing came out last night that we'll probably hear more about as we move forward, and it's affordable housing in maybe a, a new location. What can you tell us about that? Yeah, I'm very excited about this. This is the former uh, Old South Street Hospital lands. Uh, there were two parcels. There's the, the parcel on the South Street of South Street and the parcel on the North Street of South Street. Uh, the, uh, the the South parcel uh, is development is underway, and it included preservation of uh, the original hospital building and uh, uh, a couple of, uh, of high-rise towers. So you get a lot of density in there and, uh, and a, a good... Um, a remediation of the the riverfront lands too, so it uh, creates a publicly accessible space. This is the second phase in it, and uh, as, as you might be aware, there's two uh, historic buildings that were left on site. Uh, the remainders were demolished, but uh, the council last term uh, decided that it was important to preserve these two, and one's the Children's War Memorial Hospital, and the other one's the Medical Services Building. 
Um, and this this land has been sold to uh, a consortium called Vision Soho Alliance, which includes uh, uh, developers such as Indwell, Zarin Developments, Homes Unlimited, uh, Chelsea Green, and the Italian Seniors Project, uh, who have had a great track record of development of affordable housing within the city and, and some uh, really great projects. To see these, um, these developers come together as a consortium is, is exciting. Uh, the um, the concept plan for what they have laid out uh, is a mix of low and medium rise uh, um, buildings, uh, about 600 units, and about half of them will be offered at affordable rates. So this is, I think, uh, exactly what the um, uh, the old uh, Victoria um, uh, or the old Victoria Hospital uh, secondary plan envisioned, and it was uh, very much a product of consultation with the community. and uh, And I'm excited to see this move forward. Councillor Turner, thanks so much for being with us and talking about last night. Really appreciate it. Thanks so much for having me on, Mike, and uh, wishing you the best for the rest of the week. You too. Keep safe. All right. Take care. That's Ward 11 Councillor Stephen Turner. So River Road is now going to be assessed, and the land is going to be sold off, and there are those who believe this was a foregone conclusion. And This is something that, again, dates back a number of councils. But as Councillor Turner points out, you know, when you compare golf to other activities, that had to be taken into account when you compare the cost, when you compare the amount of money that's going to need to be spent on upkeep. So we'll see how this goes. If you have any thoughts on it, let me know. Uh, Mike Langley, who we spoke with, sent a number of thoughts on this, and and very good ones. Uh, we talked with Mike about some of the things that maybe could have been done, but in the end, we have reached the, well, the 18th green, and uh, we've put it out on River Road. We need to talk about Pink Shirt Day today, and not just that it's a day to wear a pink shirt, that it's a day to recognize that bullying exists and that humans may always act like this. I don't know if you ever get rid of bullying entirely, but we're going to speak in a moment with someone whose life remains changed by bullying in the worst way. Because going back now, I mean, we're, we're talking a couple of decades. He lost his son. Miles Newts was in grade five in Chatham and was put onto a coat hook in a washroom and was found unconscious and later died. And since then, Mike Newts has had to deal with that story. Mike is Miles' father. And he is someone who carries that with him every single day. What could have been done, what should have been done. And he has gone out and he has created MakeChildrenBetterNow.org. And it has been in existence for well over 10 years now. And to talk about Pink Shirt Day, to talk about bullying, we want to welcome Mike Newts to London Live. Mike, thanks for taking some time for us. 
Mike, can you hear us all right? Yes. Thank you for thinking of the subject. Well, this is a subject that, sure, we talk about on a day when we're asked to wear pink shirts and recognize that bullying takes place and and try to remind ourselves what that can mean. For you, this is something that, that you live with each and every day. What is that like to know that hey yeah sure there's there's one day out of the year or there's a couple of instances but no this this is something that needs to be talked about a whole lot more so uh, it was it was a year ago uh, this week i think a year ago today i did let my uh, last school presentation and uh, when i first started doing this i had no idea why people wanted to hear from me and then after so many years, I gradually learned that there was a message from me that young people especially seem to attach to for a multitude of reasons. I was standing down in Leamington one night with the school principal and the OPP officer, and a young man out of the audience walked up to me and he said, you changed my life today. I've been my bully my whole life. I won't do that no more. I'll stand up for the victims. And I've, I've received that numerous, numerous times. And uh, as I said, the, the presentation a year ago was great, and then COVID came along and shut us down. And February is a very frustrating uh, month for my wife and I. We've got a lot of good memories. You know, there's a lot of good things, but February is the month where Miles never came home. And with COVID and the memories of uh, February many years ago, uh, I have been very, very quiet for about a good month. Mike, when you made presentations, and hopefully you'll still be able to make presentations following this pandemic, what is the message that you try to convey to students, knowing that somewhere in that audience in front of you, there's at least one, maybe more, who have been bullies? You know, it's a, it's a behavior you can describe to the bullies as uh, nothing more than them putting up uh, their protectionism to protect them for whatever might be scratching at their fabric a little bit. Or, you know, we can almost tell with the people I uh, have done research with that almost all of us have, have experienced the bully, the victim, and the stand, uh, uh, bystander. So... Uh, the bullies um, have to come to a conclusion that we all have weaknesses and we all have strengths. And putting our will and our mind and our thoughts and our uh, ridicule on other people doesn't make us a better person. It makes us the weaker person. And then for the victims, we simply need them to speak to someone. Uh, for the bystanders, well... How many adults out there can drive down the 401 and there's a bad car accident in the opposite lane, but their lanes slow right down. Bystander lens, bystanding lens to danger, and not only in the bullying incidents in schools, but in our everyday life traveling. Mike Newts is joining us. Mike is with MakeChildrenBetterNow.org, and we'll talk about what that organization has done and continues to do. Mike, sometimes bullying can go unnoticed. Um, someone who is a victim of bullying will simply keep it inside. Was Miles keeping 
bullying inside? Did you know what was going on at school? Actually, uh, <laughs> the long and the short of it is is that Miles had not been a victim of bullying until that day. Um, we know that simply because his his communication with both of us was great, but with his mother it was absolutely dumb. It was unbelievable, his communication. Now, we know that at school he was uh, a popular, outgoing person. We know that his friends all suggested that that was not going on with him. His teachers suggested it. But he was a goody two-shoes, and uh, I believe... uh, I believe he was um, centered up that day for two reasons. Jealousy because he was so well-liked and the never-ending $10 bet. For anyone who is unfamiliar with that, what is the never-ending $10 bet? Well, there was a $10 bet between Miles and two other boys, uh, one other boy. They were doing a poster for Remembrance Day in 1997. And um, the bet was something who could finish first or whatever, and uh, Miles won. Well, at Christmas of 98, I told my boys that we would drive out west that summer and we would do this and do that and see family and friends. We had our first computer that Christmas, and Miles was already planning the trip and, uh, you know, looking at maps and contacting people. And... um, Maybe because he wanted his own money, we did. The police did find a checkoff list inside his bedroom about how much money he was saving, and um, we know that the two boys suggested that uh, he had asked about the ten dollar bet, and the older of the two boys said, "Well, we'll make them forget. We'll make them forget on Friday." And Miles never came home after Friday, February sixth. Mike Newt's joining us from Make Children Better Now. Dot org. Mike, in creating a nonprofit and creating something that aims to help other kids, what was what was that moment like when you made the decision to start with MakeChildrenBetterNow.org? When I returned back to work and there was people in the community and they were kind of, you know, ordinary people, let's say. They stand you up, they dust you off, and they push you forward. And people said, you know, after everything you've been through with the inquest and everything, and all you've learned, you have it within you to affect some change. Why don't you try and do that? And I just poo-pooed them away and said no. And But, you know, I talked to some people, and I had John Kopanak, the chief of police in Chatham, who came in about 10 months after Miles' death, and, and he was... He would not let me fall down, and they talked to me. So, And then a, a very good friend's brother-in-law contacted me. This is a man who's uh, done very well for himself in life, and he said, let me help you. Let me help you get a lawyer, and let's, let's get your nonprofit up and running. And uh, that was right there in London, Ontario. I'll never forget all the trips down there to see the lawyer. And uh, um, we were standing in her office one day and we had gone through about a year of paperwork and uh, she said what do you want to name it and I got up and I'm pacing in her office for a few minutes and all of a sudden I looked at her and 
Miles' his name was Miles Casey Benson Nukes, and I said, let's call it Make Children Better Now, using his initials of his name. And she looked at me, she looked at Brenda, and she said, did you discuss this? And Brenda said, not to that extent. She said, do you, Brenda, do you like the name? She said, yeah, I do. And that's, that's when we, and then about a year later, in October 2005, it came to fruition with the paperwork. We had our first meeting, and then uh, it was a little slow in the first few years, but boy, did we ever take off. 2010, we we've, haven't looked back there. Well, you are aiming to do just that, make children better now. I love that there is that connection to Miles' name. MakeChildrenBetterNow.org. We're talking with Mike Nudes. Mike, you mentioned the inquiry that went on, and there's suggestion that some of the recommendations still haven't been put in place. Is that true? Well, you know, we were we were plodding along, and plodding being a descriptive word, and um, it seemed like everybody was pulling the oars the same way, the school boards, the ministry, the uh, teachers' union. And then we started getting to the point of... Uh, it bogged down and slowed down. And I just did an interview in uh, November with a young lady out of the child youth worker class in uh, Chatham. We sat in our own vehicles in a parking lot in Chatham, and she she videotaped and interviewed me. And she uh, said her class wants to help me stand up and uh, tell the world that um, – Children are still watching children during noon hour with no adult supervision. And that's the circumstance that grabbed Miles that day. There was no adult. Mike Harris had attacked the teaching profession. The teachers were on lunch, and the kids were watching kids. And, you know, when the cat's away, the mice will play. It's the same thing with children. If, if they know that an adult's not there, how easy is it to grab someone's part of their lunch or to bully them or make everyone laugh because they think they're funny and that's that's the circumstances that were in effect that day when miles didn't come home now the other thing about that is that scares me even more let's pretend it's a perfect world and there is no bullying but miles as a grade five student was watching grade one students so if one of them children starts choking on a piece of food or has the allergic reaction my son is expected to run down, grab an adult, and get back in time to prevent anything seriously bad from going down. We have to have adults watching children, and it's always an argument about money in the educational system. So washing stalls haven't been built from ceiling to floor. I did a presentation in a, in a Brampton High School, and the vice principal at the end of my presentation got up and said, after my first bullying experience in a washroom in my elementary school, I never went to a washroom in an elementary, secondary, college school again. I was so traumatized that I never did it again, which is totally unhealthy, but there he was admitting to something, and he's the vice principal of the school. So we can all remember the bully, what was said, who was there, the time, the date, even the weather of those bullying incidents. Yes, there's many recommendations that haven't come to fruition. Recording inappropriate behavior on a student record, not for being punitive, but simply to, you know, if, if 
we find out Mike Meeks is a little turd for forever and a day. Let's find out why, and maybe we can get him some constructive help to help him. And I've seen a lady in Scarborough, Ontario, and she did that against her board's wishes and everything, and she kept meticulous notes, and she documented what she did for this little boy. You know why he was a bully? He was in grade six. He couldn't read or write. So to hide that from his classmates, he was the bully. And she she came to the wherewithal and found this out. And against her board's wishes, it was in People's Mag- um, Today's Parent magazine about 20 years ago. I went and met the lady. It was unbelievable. And, and at the inquest, I made sure to argue for that recommendation. Let's record the behavior, not to be punishment, but... At the same time, my name's Mike Meeks, and if I can't stop you from bullying, I will do everything I have to do to make have you punished some way, some shape, some form. Mike Newt's joining us on London Live. Mike, let's talk about MakeChildrenBetterNow.org and, and some of the things that you're working on even lately. Well, COVID sure did slam the door on us, uh, I have a musical troupe uh, of some young children handed to me by a former educator here in Chatham, Kent, Ron Corstein. He handed me a, asked me to join with Crystal Gage in a musical troupe, and we toured schools and senior uh, residences, and we sang songs about dignity, peace, and respect. Uh, you can imagine a, a bunch of uh, 15, uh, 10 to... 14-year-olds singing uh, Aretha Franklin's Respect. So I haven't seen those young people in a year. And that's upsetting. We uh, we had a summer camp for the musical arts, uh, uh, music and acting and uh, narrating. Um, didn't do that last year. Our, our annual golf tournament, our biggest fundraiser, was canceled. Our AGM, where I've had many speakers come in and sp- to our membership, Make Children Better Now is a membership thing. And, um, you know, we, we those are the things we hosted, but, uh, you know, we, we donate money to splash pads. We donate money to children to go to the World Jamboree for scouts. We donated money for mental health. Uh, I'm hopeful to... Um, to uh, uh, finalized my final payment for a $25,000 commitment we made to the London Health Science Center, a program called FEMAP, First Episode Mood Anxiety Program, uh, researched and documented by Dr. Rosetch up there in London. Uh, we've contributed to uh, mental health down here in Chatham. We sent some kids a few years ago to the WE uh, conference in Quebec. Um, yeah, we're when that lawyer asked me what did I want make children better now to do, I, I looked at her and I said, Miles' nickname was Smiles. And I said, we want children to smile and to be children and not be in a hurry to grow up to be adults and climb into whatever it is that uh, we all want to grow older for when we're young. I said, that's the simplest thing. And, and either it was really, really smart, I want to tell you that a it was my, it was our thinking, but it was also by accident. We did put up a lot of perimeters and fences to constrict us in how we could help. We having children smile has enabled us to 
do a splash pad or donate to mental health or this past summer we donated to uh, juvenile diabetes because one of my young friends from Respect was uh, in the summer of 2019 diagnosed with juvenile diabetes very high. Uh, we, we donated this past summer a small donation to a cleft palate thing for youth. So we're not restricted. People ask us. We uh, very rarely say no. Just before Christmas, we gave um, $1,500 to the uh, youth mental health ward in the London Health Science Center where children are in danger to themselves or others, and they're they're on a secured floor. And uh, a, a nurse friend who works there reached out, and we we threw them fifteen hundred dollars to go buy some socks and some fidgets and uh, things to keep the kids occupied while they're on the floor up there in the London. Well, Mike, it sounds like in making children better now you're making all of us better now and the message that you share is such an important one and thank you for having the strength to do it thank you for taking some time to talk with us about it today as well if i could add one more thing before i go um we've had a setback in the last half dozen years with hatred and racism sexism and homophobia and it seems like an awful lot of hatred was being spewed, but I can never find anything to warm my soul more than to look at children laughing and smiling, and I can never possibly hope for a better world than trying to get to a place uh, for peace and dignity and respect and love and happiness. And You know, some famous people... Both sides of the border, Michael Pierce and John F. Kennedy, Martin Luther King, we all, the goal is to make the world a better place by first trying to eradicate the hatred and the, the awful things that are done to each other in this world that we live in. And if Make Children Better Now can play a small role and part in that, then so be it. Mike, thank you. Thank you for thinking of this day and... Uh, having me on your program until we meet again. I hope we get to talk again. You keep safe. You too, sir. It's Mike Boots. Mike lost his son, Miles, when Miles was 10 years old. And that's what he's done with it. He's looking to make the world a better place. And uh, you'll never fill the void that was left, and you'll never be able to explain why it happened. As Mike says, Miles wasn't being bullied every day. This was just something that that happened, and it's something that carries Miles' name to this day, and that's important. It is Pink Shirt Day. If you see someone wearing a pink shirt, there's something that is happening that we've followed as it's been going, and news agencies all over the world have been following this as it has been going. But we wanted to bring you an update on it the latest developments from the UN and the Canada and and Canada as it pertains to the Uyghur Muslims in China and joining us right now is Canadian human rights activist Fareed Khan to talk about this Fareed thank you so much for taking time for us well thank you so much for um, discussing this uh, very important issue 
Let's make sure that we all understand a little more of the backstory here and, and what is happening with Uyghur Muslims. Is there a way to kind of sum up what their lives are like for anyone who has not heard the story before now? Sure. Um, well, Uyghur Muslims are a uh, minority uh, ethnic community in the western part of China. And for years now, they have been persecuted by the Chinese state. And just to tell you, just to inform your listeners as to what their lives are like right now, um, over a million are currently sitting in concentration camps. Some estimates put that number closer to two million. The Chinese state has abducted Uyghur children from their parents and put them into state-run indoctrination camps to strip them of their faith, their language, and their culture. Uh, the Chinese government is forcibly sterilizing Uyghur Muslim women and forcing abortions on uh, those Uyghur women who are pregnant. Uh, there is systematic rape of Uyghur women by concentration camp personnel. Uh, Uyghurs are being used as slave labor to produce goods for export. There have also been summary executions of Uyghur prisoners in order to harvest their organs. And uh, the Chinese government has destroyed thousands of mosques, including some dating back to more than a thousand years old, and they have bulldozed hundreds of Muslim cemeteries. This is the life of Uyghurs right now in China. And under the Genocide Convention, all of the five acts that are defined as genocide under the Genocide Convention, the Chinese state is committing those acts against the Uyghurs. And we know all of this. We know all of this is taking place. Yes, yes. I mean, the evidence is uh, the evidence has been presented. It was presented to um, the uh, Canada's uh, International Human Rights Subcommittee in the House of Commons. Uh, the, the stories that were related by survivors, the testimonials that were given, were horrific. There has been research done. There have been media reports. International human rights experts who study this sort of thing have confirmed that this is what's happening, and it meets the definition of genocide. And uh, there was a vote this week in Parliament uh, where 266 out of 338 MPs voted to, to declare what China is doing to the Uyghurs as genocide. Unfortunately and very regrettably, the Prime Minister and the Cabinet abstained, as did uh, a total of uh, 76 other uh, MPs, which includes the Prime Minister and the Cabinet. Um, and I and others who are active in human rights don't understand why. Um, on January 27th, it was Holocaust Remembrance Day. And the Prime Minister, as he usually does, put out a statement about... Um, about uh, how we can never let these sorts of crimes happen again that led to the Holocaust. And yet these sorts of crimes are happening again. They've happened again and again and again, and the Canadian government over the years has been absent when these crimes have been committed, and it's being absent again because the Prime Minister and the Cabinet decided they were going to abstain on this motion. And, and I think Canadians need to ask uh, this government why. Well, you say that China is involved, and that will immediately lend itself to some thought by Canadians as to, okay, that, that may play a part in this. How about the rest of the world? How about the UN? What is their response? Well, this, uh, this information was presented, uh, I believe it was this past week, at the uh, UN uh, Human Rights Committee in, uh, um, in Geneva. Um, the United States has declared this a genocide. Uh, the Trump administration, as well as the Biden administration, has declared it's, uh, it a genocide, and they are taking <clears throat> uh, 
legislative action to try and penalize uh, the Chinese state and Chinese officials who are involved. But this needs to rise to a level of an international movement. I think people need to look back at history. We had a superpower in the world once. Uh, it was Nazi Germany. And people didn't want to call out what they were doing to Jews and other minorities uh, in Germany as what it was. We, we didn't have the term genocide back then, but we did have the term crimes against humanity. And Western countries, because of Germany's power, decided to stay silent and not do anything. And we know what eventually ended up happening. The Chinese state is a dictatorial, authoritarian regime. It suppresses human rights. It imprisons people without charge. It tortures them for speaking out about human rights. It has done this previously and is doing this again. And we have to decide as Canadians, and I think as you know, people who believe in human rights, what kind of world we want to live in. Do we want to live in a world where a state like China is allowed to commit crimes against innocent people with impunity simply for the fact that they exist? Not because they committed a crime or anything, which, I mean, it wouldn't matter if they did commit a crime, but simply because they exist, which is what is happening to the Uyghurs simply because they exist. We are talking right now with Farid Khan, Canadian human rights activist, about the Uyghur Muslims in China and some of the things that they have been dealing with, absolute atrocities that they have been dealing with. Farid, what is it going to take then, do you think, for for something to change here, for something to be done here? Well, um, I have worked with the uh, Rohingya community as well to deal on the Rohingya genocide. <clears throat> and it, people may recall that in 2018 there were two motions passed, um, both in the House of Commons and Senate, and they were passed unanimously. And the House of Commons motion was supported by the Prime Minister and the Cabinet, and it declared what happened in Myanmar to the Rohingya genocide. Um, once that identification is made, there's an obligation on the government to live up to its obligations under the Genocide Convention. You can't identify a crime and then not take action to stop it or prosecute it. Well, in the case of those two 2018 motions, the government has done nothing, despite, despite um, calls repeatedly by human rights activists and human rights scholars and lawyers for the can uh, Canada to take action at the International Court of Justice. Um, and if that is the record of the government on that, on those two motions, which were unanimously supported and supported by the government, then what is going to happen with this motion, which is not supported by the government? I think Canadians need to ask ourselves, what sort of country do we want to be? And what sort of government do we want to have? And what is our moral compass? Um, for the government to take action is going to require Canadians to stand up and speak out and pressure Canada that, uh, you know, we can't stand up every year on Holocaust Remembrance Day and say never again, but not do anything when never again is happening again. I think that's what it's going to take. And people need to pressure their MPs and they need to email um, their MPs and the Prime Minister's office and the Cabinet and speak out in their communities and work with community groups, human rights groups, uh, church groups, religious groups, in order to live up to what we see ourselves as Canadians. We like to think of ourselves as we are defenders of human rights, but the record has shown that we are anything but that. This government has spoken frequently about how it upholds the international rule of law. It supports the international rule of law. Well, if it stays silent on this and does nothing, that is a total crock. Fareed Khan joining us, Canadian human rights activist. Fareed, what is it like in dealing 
with everything that you have dealt with, everything you have followed, everything you have spoken up about, what is it like when you see our government reacting the way they are toward China? I believe Canada needs to find its backbone. China is a country that has made it very clear that it wants to be a a huge player on the world stage. It has bullied its neighbors. It's used economic coercion to uh, achieve its uh, political and economic goals, and it is bullying Canada. And we know what happens when you don't stand up to bullies. And I think it's can it's time for Canada to say, you know what? I'm sorry. You know, you may. You may try and pressure us, you may hurt us, but we're going to give you a bloody nose in the process. And I think it's time for not just Canada, but for other Western democracies to stand up to China and say, you know what, we're going to be in this together and we're going to give you a bloody nose united. Farid, thank you so much for your thoughts on this and thank you for the backstory. We really appreciate it. Well, thank you very much for covering this and uh, I hope you'll continue to cover this story as it develops. It certainly will. I hope we can talk again. I'd be happy to do so. That is Fareed Khan, Canadian human rights activist. So the atrocities that are playing out, that have been reported on, that have been documented, we're talking about Uyghur Muslims in China who are being told you can only live here, who are being told you can't do this, who are again having a horrible life, and this has been documented. And and what? And where do we go? Where you know, where do we stand on this stage? China and this liberal government especially seem to have this relationship that well our federal government doesn't doesn't really wanna, you know, rock the boat too much. And what about the rest of the world? What do you what do we do here moving forward? You've been listening to the London Live Podcast. Catch the show live on weekdays from 1 to 3.